everybody, it's BF here, and today, it's the season one finale. I can't believe it is here already. Today, I am reading chapters 14, The Planting of the Tree, and chapter 15, The End of the Story. I hope you enjoy. Chapter 14, The Planting of the Tree. Well done, said Aslan in a voice that made the earth shake. Then Digri knew that all the Narnians heard those words and that the story, that the story of them would be handed down from, fur, from, from farther to son and that a new world for hundreds of years and perhaps forever. But he was in no danger of feeling excited and he didn't think about it at all now. He was face to face with Aslan. This time, he could look straight into slant the lion's eye. He had forgotten his trouble and forgot, felt complete, absolutely content. Well done, son of Adam, said the lion again. For this fruit you have hungered and thirsted and wept. No hand but yours shall, shall sow the seed of a tree that is the protection of Narnia. Throw the apple towards the riverbank where the ground is soft. Tiggery did as he is told. Everyone had grown so quiet you could hear the thump of the soft thump where it fell into the mud. It is well thrown, said the slang. Let us now proceed to the coronation of King Frank of Narnia and Helen, his queen. The children now noticed these two for the first time. They were dressed in strange and beautiful clothes, and from their shoulders, rich robes flowed out from behind them for the four dwarfs held the king up the king's train in the four river nymphs, the queens. Their heads were bare, bare, but Helen had let her hair down and it made a great improvement in her appearance. But it was neither hair nor clothes that made them look so different from their old selves. Their faces had a new expression, especially the king's. All the sharpness and cunning and quarrelsomeness he had picked up as a London cabby seemed to have been washed away and the courage of kindness he had always that he had always had were easier to see. Perhaps it was the air of the young world that had done it, or talking to Eslan, or both. Upon my word, whispered Fledge to Pod, Polly, my old master has been changed nearly as much as I have. Why, he's a real master now. Yes, but don't buzz in my ear like that, said Polly. It tickles so. Now said, now, said Aslan, some of you undo that tangle that you've made with those trees, and let us see what we shall find there. Daigri now saw that where the four trees grew close together, their branches had been laced together or tied together with switches as so, so as to make a sort of a cage. The two elephants with their trunks and a few dwarves with their few their little axes soon got it all done. There are three things inside. There were, one was a young tree that seemed to be made out of gold. Second was a young tree that seemed to be made out of silver. And but but the third was a miserable object in muddy clothes, sitting hunched up between them. Gosh, whispered Dave, Uncle Andrew. To explain this, we must go back a bit. The beast, you remember, had tried planting and watering him. When the watering brought him to his senses, he found himself soaking wet, buried up to his thighs in earth, which was quickly turning to mud. 
and was surrounded by more wild animals than he had dreamed of in his life before. It was perhaps not surprising that he began to scream and howl. This was in a way a good thing, for at last persuaded to everyone, even the warthog, that he was alive. So they dug him up again. His trousers were in a really shocking state by now. As soon as his legs were free, he tried to bolt. The one swift curl of the elephant trunk around his waist soon put an end to that. Everyone now thought that he must be kept, safely kept somewhere till Aslan had time to see him and see what should be done about him. So, so they made a sort of a cage or coop all around him. Then they offered him everything they could think of to eat. The donkey collected great piles of thistles and threw them in, but the Uncle Andrew didn't seem to care about them. The squirrels bombarded him with volleys of nuts, but he only covered his head with his hands and tried to keep out of the way. Several birds flew to and fro, diligently dropping worms on him. The bear was especially kind. During the afternoon, he found a wild bee's nest instead of eating himself, which he, which he would very much have liked to done. This worthy creature brought it back to Uncle Andrew. But this was in, in fact, the worst failure of all. The bear lobbed the whole sticky mass over the top of the enclosure and unfortunately hit Uncle Andrew slap in the face for not all the for uh, for not all the bees were dead. The bear, who would have not at all minded being bitten hit in the face by a honeycomb himself, could not under why Uncle Andrew staggered back, slipped, and sat down. And it was sheer bad luck that he sat down on, on the pile of thistles. And anyway, as the warthog said, quite a, long, quite a lot of honey has gone to the creature's mouth and has bounded on it some good. They were really getting quite fond of their strange pet and hoped that Aslan would allow them to keep it. The cleverer ones were quite sure by now that at least some of the noises which came out of his mouth had a meaning. They christened him Bandy because he, because he made that noise so often. In the end, however, they had to leave him there for the night. Aslan was busy all, all that day instructing the new clinic king and queen to doing other important things and could not attend to poor old Brandy with nuts, pears, apples, and bananas which had been thrown to him. He did very well for supper, but it wouldn't be true to say that he had passed an agreeable night. Bring out the creature, said Aslan. One of the elephants lifted Uncle Andrew in his trunk and laid him at the lion's feet. He was too frightened to move. Please, Aslan, said Polly. Could you say something to to frighten him? And then and then could say something to prevent him from ever coming back here again? Do you think he wants to? said Aslan. Well, Aslan, said Polly. He might send some so, he might send someone else. He he's so excited about the bar off the lamppost, going into the lamppost tree, and he thinks Thinks he's a great folly child," said Aslan. This world was bursting for li with life for these few days because of the song, which I called it to life, still hangs in the air and rumbles in the ground. It will not be so for long, but I cannot tell that, th that to this old sinner that I cannot comfort him either. 
he has made himself unable to hear my voice. If I spoke to him, he would only he would hear only growlings and roarings. Oh, Adamson, how cleverly you defend yourself against all that might do you good. But I will give him the only gift he is still able to receive. He bowed his great head rather sadly and breathed into the magician's terrified face. Sleep, he said. Sleep and be separated for some few hours from all the torments you from all the torments you've devised for yourself. Uncle Andrew immediately rolled over with closed eyes and began breathing peacefully. Carry him aside and lay him down, said Aslan. Now, dwarves, show your smithcraft. Let me see the two pounds for your king and queen. More dwarves than you could dream of rushed towards the golden tree. They had all of its leaves stripped off and some lay of its branches torn off too. Boys with a Jack Robinson. And now the children could see that it was not merely like golden, but it was real soft gold. It had a course sprung up from the half silver rings, which had fallen out of Uncle Andrew's pocket when he turned upside down, just as the silver had grown up from the half crowns. From nowhere, as it seemed, piles of dry bushwood for, for fuel, a little anvil, Hammers, tongs, and bellows were produced. The next moment, how those dwarves loved their work, the fire was blazing, the bellows were roaring, and the gold was melting. Their hammers were clinking. Two moles, who Aslant had set to dig, which they liked best, earlier in the day, poured out a pile of precious stones at the dwarves' feet. Under the clever fingers of the little smiths, two crowns took shape. Not ugly, Heavy things like mo modern European crowns, but light, delicate, beautifully shaped circles that you could really wear and looked nicer by wearing. The king was set with rubies and the queen with em emeralds. When the crowns had been cooled in the river, Helen made Frank and Helen kneel before him and he placed the crowns on their head. Then he said, Rise up, king and queen of Narnia, father and mother of many things that shall be in Narnia, in the Isles and Archenland. Be just and merciful and brave. The blessing is upon you. Then everyone clapped, I mean cheered, or bayed, or neighed, or trumpeted, or clapped its wings, and the royal hair pair stood looking solemn and a little shy, but all the nobler for their shyness. shyness. And while Diggory was still cheering, he heard the deep voice of, of a slam beside him saying, look, Everyone in the crowd turned its head, and then everyone drew a long breath of wonder and delight. A little way off, towering over their heads, they saw a tree which had certainly not been there before. It must have grown up silently, yet swiftly, as a flag rises when you pull it up on a flagstaff. While they were busied about the coronation, its spreading branches seemed to catch the light rather than the shade, and the silver apples pe peeped up peeped out like stars from under every leaf. But it was the smell which had came from it, even more than its sight, that made everyone draw in their breath. For a moment, one could hardly think about anything else. Son of Adam, said Slan, you have sown well, and you Narnians 
Let it be the first care, your first care to guard this tree, for it is your shield. The witch, whom I told you, had fled far away into the north of the world, and she will live on there, growing stronger in dark magic. And while that tree flourishes, she will never come down to Narnia. She will not, she dare not come within a hundred miles of the tree, for it's snow, which is joy and life and health to you, is death, horror, and despair to her. Everyone was staring solemnly at the tree when a slant suddenly swung around his head, scattering golden gleams of light from his mane as, as he did so, and fixed his large eyes on the children. What is it, children? he said, for he caught them on the very act of whispering and nudging one another. Oh, a slant, sir, said Diggory, turning red. I forgot to tell you. The witch has already eaten one of those apples, one of the same kind of the tree they grew from. He hadn't really said it all he was thinking, but Polly's at once said it for him. Digger is much more afraid than she of looking a fool. So we thought, Slan, she said, that there must be some mistake. She, and she can't really mind the smell of those apples. What do you think, daughter of Eve? Asked the lion. Well, she ate one. Child. He replied, that is why all the rest are now a horror to her. That's what happens to those who pluck and eat fruits at the long time and in the wrong way. The fruit is good, but they loathe it ever after. Oh, I see, said Polly. And I suppose because she took it in the wrong way, it won't work for her. I mean, it won't always make her young and all that. At last, said Slam, shaking his head, it will. Things always work according to their nature. She won. Uh, she has won her heart's desire. She has unwearying strength and endless days like a goddess. But the length of days is an evil heart's only length of misery, and already she begins to know it. All will get what they want. They do not like it. They do not always like it. I n n nearly ate well myself a slime, said Diggory. Would I? You would, child, said the slime. For the fruit always works. It must work. But it does not work happily for anybody who plucks it at their own will. If any Narnian, unbidden, had stolen an apple and planted it here to protect Narnia, it would have protected Narnia. But it would have done by making Narnia into another strong and cruel empire like Charn. Not the kindly land I made it to be. And the witch has tempted to do another thing, my son, did she not? Yes, it's land. She wanted me to take an apple home to my mother. Understand then that it would have healed her, but not joy, but not your joy to hers. The day she, the day would have come when both you and she would have ha looked back and said it would have been better to die in that illness. And Diggory could say nothing, for tears choked him, and he gave up all hopes of saving his mother's life. At the same time, he knew that the lion had knew what have what would have happened, and there might be some things more terrible than losing someone you love by death. But now. Aslan was speaking again, almost in a whisper. That is what would have happened, child, with a stolen apple. It is not what will happen now. What I give you will now bring joy. It will not in your world give endless life, but it will heal. Go, pluck her an apple from the tree. In a second, Digger could hardly understand, as if the whole world had turned out and upside down. And then, like someone in a dream, 
He was walking across the tree. And the king and queen were cheering him. And all the creatures were cheering too. He plucked the apple and put it into his pocket. And then he came back to his land. Please, he said, may we go home now. He had forgotten to say thank you. But he meant it. And Aslan understood. That is the end of chapter 14. The next chapter, which is chapter 15, is called the end of this story and the beginning of all others. Chapter 15, the end of the story and the beginning of all the others. You need no rings when I am with you, said the voice of Aslan. The children blinked and looked about them. They were once more in the wood between the worlds. Uncle Andrew lay still in the, on the grass, still asleep. Aslan stood beside them. Come, said Aslan. It is time that you went back. But there are two things to see to, see to first. A warning and a command. Look here, children. They looked and saw a little hole in the grass with a grassy bottom, warm and dry. When you were last here, said Aslan, that hollow was a pool. And when you jumped into it, you came to the world where a dying sun shone over the ruins of Charn. There is no pool now. That world is ended, as if it had never been. Let the, let the rays of Adam and Eve take warning. Yes, Aslan, said both of the children. But Polly added, but we were not quite as bad as that world. Are we, Aslan? Not yet, daughter of Eve, he said. Not yet, but you are growing more and more like it. It is not certain some wicked one of your race will not find out a secret as evil as the deplorable word and use it to destroy all living things. And soon, very soon, when you were, before you were an old man and an old woman, great nations in your world will be ruled by tyrants who care no more for joy and justice and mercy than the Empress Jadis. Let your world beware, and that is your warning. Now for the command. As soon as you can, take this from this uncle of yours his magic rings and bury them so that no one can use them again. Both the children were looking up into the lion's face as he spoke these words. And all at once, they never knew exactly how it happened. His face seemed to be a sea of tossing gold in which they were floating, and such a sweetness and power rolled about them and over them, and entered them as they felt they had never really been happy or wise or good, or even alive and awake before. And the memory of that moment stayed with them always. So as long as they both live, even if they ever were sad or afraid or angry, the thought of all that good and golden goodness and the feeling that it was still there, quite close, just around some corner or just behind some door, would come back and make them sure, make them sure, deep down inside, all is well. The next minute, all three of them, Uncle Andrew was now awake, came tumbling into the noise, heat, and hot smells of London. They were on the pavement outside the Ketterly's front door, and except that the witch, the horse, and the cabbie were gone. Everything was exactly how they left it. There was the lamppost with one arm missing. There was the wreck of the handsome cab, and there was the, was the crowd. Everyone was still talking, and the people were dealing beside the damaged policemen, saying things like, he's coming around, or how do you feel now? old trap or the ambulance will be here in a jiffy great scott thought diggory i believe the whole adventure is taking no time at all most people were wildly looking around for jadis and the horse 
No one took any notice for the children, but no one had seen them go or noticed them coming back. So Uncle Andrew, but between the state of his clothes and the honey on his face, he would have not been recognized by anyone. Fortunately, the front door of the house was open, and the housemaid was standing in the doorway, staring at the fun. What a day that girl's having. So the children had no difficulty in bus bustling inside, bustling Uncle Andrew indoors before anyone asked any questions. He raised up the stairs before them, and at first they were very afraid. They were very afraid he was heading for his attic and meant to hide the remaining magic rings. But they needn't have bothered. He was thinking about was the bottle in the wardrobe as he disappeared at once into the bedroom and locked the door. When he came out again, which was not for a long time, he was in his dressing gown and made straight for the bathroom. Can you get the other rings, Paul? said Diggory. I want to go to Mother. All right, see you later, said Polly, and clattered up the attic stairs. And then Diggory took a minute to get his breath and then went softly into his mother's room. And there she lay. And he seen her, and he seen her lay with so many other times, propped up on the pillows with a thin, pale face that would make you cry to look at it. Diggory took the apple of life out of his pocket. And just as the witch Jadith looked different, when you saw her in the world instead of in her own, so the fruit of the mountain garden looked different too. There were, of course, all sorts of colored things in the bedroom. The colored counterpane on the bed, the wallpaper, the sunlight from the window, mother's pretty pale blue dressing jacket. But, but, at, but the moment Diggory took the apple out of his pocket, all those things seemed to have scarcely any color at all. Every one of them, even the sunlight, looked faded and dingy. Me. The brightness of the apple threw strange lights on the ceiling. Nothing else was worth looking at. You couldn't look at anything else. And then the smell of the apple of use was as if there was a window of a room that opened in heaven. Oh, darling, how lovely, said Diggory's mother. You will eat it, won't you, please, said Diggory. I don't know what the doctor would say, she answered. But really, I almost feel as if I could. He peeled it and cut it up and gave it to her piece by piece. And no sooner she had finished it, than she smiled and her head sank back onto the pillow and she was asleep. A real, natural, gentle sleep, without any of those nasty drugs, which was, as Diggory knew, the thing in the whole world that she wanted most. And he was sure now that her face looked a little different. He bent down and kissed her very softly and stole out of the room with a beating heart taking the core of the apple with him. For the rest of the day, whenever he looked at things about him and saw how ordinary and unmagical they were, he hardly dared to hope. When he remembered the face of his line, he did hope. That next evening, he buried the core in the back garden. The next morning, when the doctor made his usual visit, Diggory leaned over the banister to listen. He, he heard the doctor come out with Aunt Letty and say, Miss Ketterly, this is the most extraordinary case I've known in my whole medical career. It is, it is like a miracle. I wouldn't tell a little boy anything at present. We don't want to raise any false hopes, but in my opinion, then his voice became too low to hear. That afternoon, he went down the garden and whistled after the sec he whistled their agreed secret signal for Polly. She hadn't been able to get back the day before. What luck, said Polly, looking over the wall. 
I mean, about your mother. I think, I think it's going to be all right, said Diggory. But you don't mind, I'd rather not talk about it yet. What about the rings? I've got them all, said Polly. Look, it's all right. I'm wearing gloves. Let's bury them. Yes, let's. I've marked a place where I buried the core of the apple yesterday. Then Polly came over the wall and they went together to the place. But as it turned out, Diggory need not have marked a place. Something was already coming up. It was not growing so that you could see it grow in the new trees that had come in Narnia. But it was really well above ground. They got a trowel and buried all the magic rings, including their own ones, in a circle around it. About a, about a week after this, it was quite certain that Diggory's mother was getting better. About a fortnight later, she was able to sit out in the garden. A month later, that the whole house became a different place. Aunt Liddy did everything that mother liked. The windows were open, frowsy curtains were drawn back to brighten up the rooms, there were new flowers everywhere, and nicer things to eat. And the whole piano was tuned, and Mother took up her singing again. And had such games with Diggory and Polly that Aunt Letty would say, I declare, Mabel, you're the biggest baby of the three. When things go wrong, you'll find usually they you'll find they usually go on getting worse for some time. But when things once start getting right, they often go about better, going start getting better and better. After about six weeks of this, lovely life came a long letter from father in India, which was wonderful news in it. Old great aunt uncle, great old great uncle Kirk had died, and this meant apparently that father was now very rich. He was going to retire and come home from India forever and ever. And the great big house in the country, which Diggory had heard of all of his life, and never and never seen, would now be their home. The big house with suits of armors, the stables, the kennels, the rivers, and the park, and the hot houses, the vineries, the woods, and the mountains behind it. So Diggory felt just as sure you, just as sure you that they were all going to live heavily after, happily after after. Perhaps you'd like to know one or two things more. Polly and Diggory were always great friends, and she came nearly every holiday to stay with them at their beautiful house in the country. And that was where she learned to ride and swim and milk and bake and climb. In Narnia, the beasts lived in great peace and joy, and neither the witch nor any enemy came to trouble with a pleasant life for many hundred years. King Frank and Queen Helen and their children lived happily in Narnia, and their second son became king of Archenland. The boys married nymphs, and the girls ma married wood gods and river gods. The lamppost, which the witch planted without knowing it, shone day and night in the Narnian forest, so that the place where it grew would be called, the la would be called Lantern Waste. And when, many years later, another child from our world got into Narnia on a snowy night, she found the light still burning. And that adventure was, in a way, connected with the ones I had just been telling you about. It was like this. The tree which sprang from the apple that Diggory planted in the back garden lived and grew into a fine tree. Growing out of the soil of our world, far out of the sound of the slant's voice and far from the young air of Narnia, is the not bare apples that would receive a dying woman as Diggory's mother has been revived. Though it did bear apples more beautiful than any others in England, and they are good for you, though not fully magical. 
but inside itself, in the very sap of it, the tree, to, to, so to speak, never forgot the, uh, the other tree in Narnia to which it belonged. Sometimes it would move mysteriously when there was no wind blowing. I think that when this happened, there was high winds in Narnia, and the English tree quivered because at that moment the Narnia tree was rocking and swaying in a strong southwestern gale. However it might be, it was proved later there was still magic in its wood. For when Digger was quite middle-aged, and he was a famous learned man, a professor, and a great traveler by that time, and the Cadillys' whole house belonged to him, there was a great storm all over the south of England which blew the tree down. He could bear to have it simply chopped up for firewood, and so he had part of a chimber made into a wardrobe, which he put into his big house in the country. And though he himself did not discover the magic properties of that wardrobe, someone else did. And that was the beginning of all the comings and goings between Narnia and our world, which you can read in our other books. In other books. When Digger and his people went to live in the big country house, they took Uncle Andrew to live with them, for Digger's father said, you must try to keep the old fellow out of mischief. And it wasn't fair that poor Letty sh should, have, should have him always in her, on her hands. Uncle Andrew never tried any magic again as long as he lived. He had learned his lesson, and in his old age he became a nicer and a less selfish old man than he had ever been before. He had always liked to get vague visitors alone in the billiard room and tell them stories about a mysterious lady Foreign royalty, which whom he had driven, that he had driven about London, a devilish temper she had. He'd say, but she was a damn fine woman, a damn fine woman.